Hello and welcome to Clean Beauty Asia's podcast. I'm your host, Ali Rook. This interview series is a collection of conversations with people who operate, support and facilitate beauty brands doing business in Asia. My aim is to provide valuable insights and information to make your beauty brand's transition into Asia as smooth and successful as possible. This first series is dedicated to cross-border e-commerce in China, and I really hope you find it valuable. Thank you so much for listening. Welcome to this episode of my interview series. Today I've got Sophie and Joanna. They are Chinese living in China, but have spent a lot of time outside of China in the US, the UK, and Italy. And part of this inspired them to co-found a Chinese hair care brand called La Terapia. It's um, already launched in China and has received over $5 million in seed funding, and it's establishing itself both online and offline in the China market. So I thought it would be interesting to have them both on today to discuss a bit about their journey and the hair care industry and market in China at the moment. So Sophia and Joanna, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit of why you guys decided to start a hair care brand? Like what gap did you see in the market that um, you feel that the Terapia is filling? Uh, yeah, sure. I, I think I, I'll get started for a little bit. Um, and um, so first of all, I think always um, the idea of starting something new um, comes from personal experience. Uh, especially for, um, you know, this personal care, hair care stuff. A lot of people, we get these questions a lot. Um, like um, you were in working in financial services, so why would you all of a sudden want to start a brand in hair care? So uh, Joanna and myself were actually avid user of um, all kinds of hair care products before we started this brand. Um, yeah, so for example, I had... Um, pretty freezing hair uh, throughout my whole life. And um, because I have worked um, and studied in uh, across different cities, um, New York, Hong Kong, London, and also Shanghai. Um, and I've experienced all kinds of climates and um, this have caused different issues for my frizzy hair, I would say. And I, for that reason, I've tried I would say thousands of hair care products across different brands. Um, and um, however, um, especially after I came back to China, uh, working in Shanghai, I couldn't find um, the right hair care product that I would like to use on a daily basis. Um, and um, that got me pretty frustrated. Um, so I, and I also had a lot of conversations with people around me, especially younger generations, uh, that they were constantly looking for right hair care solutions, especially in the face of uh, a lot of the thinning hair issues uh, that young people are experiencing these days due to strong stress and um, I would say irregular schedule um, uh, due to overwork 
and stuff. So, um, so that um, I heard all these kind of voices, and that got me to um, explore this specific vertical in hair care. Um, yeah, and um, maybe maybe Joanna wants to add to some some of that her experience as well, because she had a, a pretty interesting story too. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think personally, uh, for me, it was it was just because I had this problem of thinning hair, and I was just trying to um, search for a product that you can that you can use to volumize your hair. But then, like, I realized that usually the products like the shampoos um, that you can find in the market, they are designed for like um, I don't know, like Western, Western scalp types because and also i think uh, like the um our hair are really different from um hair of i don't know like um white people or black people because i think um asian people have really fine hair and fine and um i don't know like pretty fragile and um, that's why I'm thinking. I was thinking that probably we should find something that is just for our, uh, like that specific design for us. For us, um, I tried different brands. I tried a lot of the Japanese brands because I was thinking probably um, they have similar problems. But um, it's still it's still quite um, different because I think um, in Japan they are very focused on uh, providing the like the called clean or whatever like um clean formula so like they don't really clean your scalp enough which is a problem for me because i have i have really oily, oily scalp and if i don't clean it enough it's um it causes um hair loss and it, uh, like a lot of issues mm. so yeah um when i met sophie in london um, we're just talking and we, it just uh, hit us that we were both looking for like a, a perfect like the perfect shampoo uh, throughout throughout our life and it's funny because um, together we almost tried I think I wouldn't say like 100% but like 99% of all the shampoos available on the market mm -hmm. like from from Europe from from the States from Asia but we still feel that there's no product that can actually satisfy our our needs mm. and that's why we're thinking probably we should do that yeah it's really interesting because i've done a quite a lot of work with brands in the hair care space and i think there is in china a very um, clear discontent with the options that are available like people are not happy with the options there's a lot of switching between brands um, and I, obviously, you guys both mentioned two of the most um, common issues with with hair concerns. So, first of all, the thinning hair is is really a concern with young with young people in China, which is something that in the West it's not such a big issue with young pe younger people. So, yeah. I think that's um, you know the, all the stress, the nine nine six life, you know, all this stuff. But nine nine six, yeah, um, right. exactly. Um, and also frizzy hair is something that comes quite high up on the, when you look at the studies as well, in terms of pain points. Um, the other thing that's interesting at the moment is you mentioned scalp. So scalp is something that I've seen quite a lot of growth in the last sort of 12, 18 months in China in terms of demand for scalp care. 
there's um just as a slight aside wanted to ask you because in china they there's a specific thing about scalp and like saggy scalp saggy face right this idea of your scalp linking to your like this anti-aging mm-hmm. thing so mm. is that something that you guys ever use when you talk to consumers or is it just something that culturally you have in the back of your mind that you know that it's a it's something that people think about uh, yes I, I i actually think um because the china market is at the very early stage of understanding the importance of scalp health um people were I would say majority of the consumers are still trying to grasp the idea of they have to use conditioner after applying shampoo. And um, most consumers we encounter actually told us that they would rather just use one product for um, all of the uh, routine of washing their hair. So I think to uh, emphasize the how you need to take care of your scalp and why scalp is so important, um, is something truly important at this stage to educate the customers in China market. So definitely, I will try to, um, I say, I would say, um, try to, um, you know, deliver the message of the idea that uh, scalp is somehow linked to your, um, you know, skin, and um, you kind of need to adopt the attitude and the routine of taking care of your skin on a daily basis of taking care of your scalp as well. Um, I think especially for uh, young people these days, even though they were experiencing a high level of stress um, under the 996 um, schedule, they were trying to spend as much as, um, you know, they would love to, to on their personal health and personal um, well-being, I would say. So uh, that that is definitely something we pay a lot of attention to and we would incorporate that in our brand message as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, I mean, then looking more generally at um, hair care, how the hair care market's changing in China. Like, you know, we talked a little bit about scalp, but what, what are some trends that you guys are seeing uh, at the moment? Um, yeah, uh, so for me, I would say uh, we're definitely seeing, um, you know, um, I would say maybe, um, you know, two to three trends, general trends. First one is definitely the uh, premiumization of the brand. Um, so we're seeing um, during, I would say, uh, several years back, uh, if you uh, look at what kind of brands that people use, they were usually under Unilever and PNG, um, and uh, they were uh, super accessible. You can get uh, anywhere in the supermarket, um, and people were mostly purchasing for just pure utility purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, they were not. I would say between the brands, they were not differentiating themselves enough. Um, and people were pretty satisfied with that situation. But um, during this couple of years, we're definitely seeing, um, you know, uh, people were willing to pay much more for uh, brands and products that can actually solve their issues uh, 
And I would say if you look at the increase in the price range, that is quite significant. Uh, if you compare, let's say, the crustas under Oreo versus you know PNG brand or Unilever brand, the, the price difference is uh, it's it's kind of huge. Um, and uh, second is we're I I think we're seeing uh, like you mentioned uh, we're we're seeing early adopters of you know these premium brands. They were. Um, you know, self-advocating for those, um, I think, uh, specific specific needs that they want to see in hair care products. Yeah, like so that, scalp, that segmentation, right, in the market. Yeah, segmentation, exactly. So scalp health is definitely one segment, uh, but we're seeing other segments like for damage and dyed hair. Um, you're also seeing... Um, I think pregnant people definitely wanted to have more clean solutions or less, uh, you know, kind of sensitive, friendly solutions. Mm -hmm. um, so I think these uh, specific needs are definitely generated throughout these couple of years, uh, pretty recent in China. And in right. terms of the, the premiumization piece, uh, obviously there are some brands that have really leveraged that Kerastase from L'Oreal is one mm. very well. Do you think, and, and you guys are playing from a Chinese brand, playing in that mm -hmm. space, right? But how do you, so how do you see the differences between the local brands playing in that premium space versus the mm. international brands? Apart from budgets, like, okay, the big brands, yeah, yeah, yeah. budgets, but, you know, aside from that, like how they're talking to the consumer or what they're focusing on, or do you have any thoughts on the differences there? Um, yeah, I think, yeah, Joanna can start. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm just saying that probably um, there's, I, I wouldn't say there's none, but I, I just don't think there are many players like local players in the premium yeah. segment segment of the market uh, I mean for probably for um uh, I don't know for the for the, for the facial care I don't know um, you, you can still find some Chinese yeah, brands play sure. in the premium segment but for hair care mm -hmm. um, there's just none apart from us mm -hmm. I think uh, so I think there there are two reasons. First of all, it's because hair care hair care is still like um under develop under development um segmentation of personal care. So you see people spend like I don't know like two thousand yuan for like um la pre, la pre uh, cream, but they don't they, they don't want to they don't want to necessarily spend like two hundred yuan for like a I don't know for a piece, uh, bottle of shampoo, um which is interesting because you know um uh. It's um it's uh, it's as Sophie said it's because uh, it's still like a long way to go for um for the Chinese hair care market. Uh, secondly, it's because the perception of the customer and unfortunately people still see, I don't know like the Western brand as the more more premium, more I don't know um established. I think it's because of the the work they have done in the past twenty years. So, for example, I think um, Kerstas is like the they most um, I don't know like um, the like people when when people talk about like the premium um, hair care brand, they would think of Kerstas, and a lot of hair salons 
they would advertise on this and they, they, they would be like, we're using Curtis shampoo in our salon. Uh, which is interesting. Which is which is really interesting because, like, um, I, I remember when I lived in Europe, uh, especially in Italy, because there are so many different different hair care brands. And a lot of a lot of them are organic, and people don't necessarily think Curacao is a, is a really great brand. The perception is just different, right? And they would probably use like the um, more I don't know the more independent or indie yeah. brand like. Um, I don't know, Moroccan, Moroccan oil and a lot of European organic brands mm. um, because I think people are just most uh, more um, likely to try for different brands to find their own, like uh, find the one that is more suitable for, their, for themselves. Uh, versus in China, it's more like, oh, um, this brand is on Li Jiaqi's live stream, so, so I have to get it. Yeah, yeah and I think that's the immaturity yeah. of the market as well, right? Like, so obviously in skincare and makeup, those big brands still do very well, but there is more diversification of the market. There are more niche brands that people are interested in and people are buying. I think hair care is just that, that it's a matter of time. Um, we've already seen some international players that are, you know, market leaders like Olaplex. They're now in China doing pretty well um and so i think that it's you we need more of the international interestingly i think for you guys you need more of the international players to come in to almost build the market and then once people start thinking oh there's other products outside of keristas in this premium space then they start going oh okay well what are the local well you know what's the local option well and especially to your point earlier sophie about this or both of you talking about Chinese hair, like the difference between, that's something that I think the Western brands, when they're coming in, they really need to address. Like how, how do they talk about how their products are good for Chinese hair? And of course you guys are designed for Chinese hair. So it's, it's a whole nother level. But I think that's something, the market hasn't fully been created yet. Because when I look at the market rankings, I mean, Kerastas takes, you know, more than the, out of the top 20, yeah. they're like more than top, more than 10 of their products are in the top 20, right? So they're completely dominating shampoo over 200 RMB, like they completely dominate it. Um, but I think mm. consumers, generally consumers want different options, right? They want to explore different options. So I think that's still um, a big opportunity. Yeah. The maturity. Yeah. Um, and so- yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll just add one Oh, I, I think I'll just add one small point. Um, I, I think I, because I used to use Kerastas a lot as well. Um, I think the difference we're also trying to create is even though it's di difficult to um, build a D2C brand in China, given the different ecosystem. Um, but what we're trying to do differently from Kerastas is still to have a closer connection with the end consumers. So to include them much earlier in the development you know, cycle for our new products, I think will be difficult for a lot of um, you know, these huge brands like Rastas to achieve that because um, they definitely have a um, different internal procedure for launching new products. And um, because I also understand they rely quite heavily on the um, 
salon networks to distribute their products. So I think um, the connection with end consumer um, that we're building is something that we value very much uh, as well. In, in Absolutely. The process. And in other categories, we've seen that be very successful for Chinese brands, right? Like creating yeah. networks, creating the communities, um, really being able to leverage that um, that community to feel like they're inputting into, into what you're doing. And, you know, the florists, they do that. Um, lots of, you know, lots of brands in the makeup space are doing that. And of course, makeup product development is so quick and it's quite, uh, yes. it's quite right. easy to get them to have input. I think hair care, it's complex <laughs> to do that, but great that you can bring people on the journey because that's a massive differentiator versus the foreign brands. Because even the big foreign brands, because of the way that they work, it's hard for them to do that. But even the smaller foreign brands, it's very hard for them to do that because they don't have a big enough market in China versus their global market. So they're not formulating for China. Um, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's a great, um, that's a great differentiator. So we talked a while ago about you guys thinking for La Terapia to expand outside of China as well. And obviously something on your roadmap is to move into different geographies. Where do you see the biggest challenge, like for you and also for, you know, Chinese brands in general, moving outside of China into other markets? Um, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, yeah, I, I, I'll first um, say from my personal perspective, um, I think first of all would be, uh, I think we had a small discussion before about these uh, is to, um, uh, to enter the market for, um, especially if we are talking about um, uh, European and uh, you know North American market, um, to localize your content and to tell a compelling brand story for the local audience is something uh, that would be a little bit challenging for most Chinese brands. I do think this is something that we have a a relatively stronger uh, position in because both of us and also the rest of the funding team had experience uh, living in um, living overseas um, and can leveraging their personal experience from the uh, you know e either the Europe or uh, North America. But for most other Chinese brands, that that is definitely like the first challenge that they would encounter. Uh, because um, in China, uh, it's definitely not super content driven, as much content driven as in uh, you know Western market. Um, yeah, and um, I think second is to uh, is definitely to, you know you know to combat to to find your anchor um, to combat those established players in the Western markets. Um, I think. Uh, for example, um, because you listed the J Beauty, K Beauty, they were definitely great precedent examples to learn from. Because um, all usually they anchor on one really interesting and kind of uh, a little bit of a um, how to say mysterious uh, ingredient or, uh, or 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 something that 
I would say Western audience or consumers are not super familiar with, but they were would be curious to uh, learn more about. Um, I think that so so that's th that kind of um, I would say legendary ingredient or or kind of formula or something that's um, you know kind of would be attractive for Western culture to comprehend is. Uh, it is definitely, um, you know, for for uh, Chinese brands or even Asian brands, uh, that that's something that uh, it will be successful. Uh, yeah. If they can bring that to the Western market, it will be a great successful start. Yeah, I think your point about the content driven or the um, story, the brand story. So the brand story is something that I often find is a little bit week in China, very few brands really put forward their founder story. So you guys, when you're talking to a Chinese audience, do you put yourselves for at the front? Do you talk about your fat, your background? Do you really like, do you do that? Yeah, I think jo Joanna can, can talk about that. Um, we She's do. the main content creator. Okay. <laughs> we brand, do, yeah. but I totally understand your point of um, the difference between Chinese market and the Western market. I, I think um, in China, it's uncommon. It's, unco it's, it's just rare for the founders to talk about their stories because I think for a lot of reasons. I think because um, Chinese people usually we are not that um indiv indiv individualistic yeah. and it's just it's just weird to talk about your own stories like and as a brand and also it's sometimes it's diff it's um dangerous because it risks of associating a brand to a specific person and sometimes like in china it's usually like what what always happens is like people dig really deep into this person's background and they find something mm. uh, which can jeopardize the whole brand but um but yeah i think it's um i think more and more people are comfortable talking about their brand their their stories in front of in front of the public in china now and we also i mean i also have like um account all um stuff like that on um on social media in China, like Red, and sometimes customers would write to me, and it's 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 just um, it's amazing that um, I think younger generation realize that if they actually it's it's just great they can actually talk to someone who are like you know <clears throat> creating those products for them, and they feel that and they give them it's kind of like empower them because they're not just satisfied being on the receiving end like some big uh, international corporation just you know came here and be like we have the best product you, you, and you need, you need to pay right they're more like <clears throat> they actually want to know more about how the brand is created and who are the person who are the people behind and they're not that uh, they don't really care that much about like whether it's like a big international international corporation anymore yeah, I mean, I, mean, look, I think there are some really interesting points in there. If you sort of dissect what you're saying, this idea about culturally, how difficult and uncomfortable it feels to put yourself forward. I think that's something that, you know, I think maybe a lot of brands 
don't Western brands don't realize because in the West, it's so normal now, right? Like all the niche brands, most of them, a lot of them have a founder story and, and the consumers want to see that because they want that authenticity. They don't really want it to be just a company with no face, right? They want to know, and they're on the websites, the founders are telling their story about hair loss or about getting ill and changing their routine or whatever that is. And that's really something that differentiates a niche brand from a big brand, like from a L'Oreal group, from an Estee Lauder group, because you have those stories. Um, but in China, yes, it's absolutely not there. And whether it will ever get there is a question, right? Um, but I think that when Chinese brands are looking to go overseas, it's something that you guys have to balance because a company without that background story doesn't feel so believable. Um, and so people really, so that, you know, that's something you can play, right? You can play up that in the West and play it down in China. But, but I think also what you were saying that there is maybe with younger consumers that that they like that they like that accessibility and yes of course someone can dig and find something and you know that can be nerve-wracking it's the same everywhere right like that that is a risk that you run but I think that it is a, it's interesting and I, I feel like we will see more brands in China bringing that forward because like Perfect Diary, they created amazing communities with their um, you know on WeChat but it was all quite fake right because it's not it's, it's it, like it worked for a period of time but then it didn't yeah. work so well anymore and I think because consumers were like well they enjoyed these groups where they could all talk and they share things but actually the person from um, Perfect Diary that was there and they moderated they're not real like they don't it's not a real person it's 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 a it's a company so I don't know I think there's something there and see and and so I think it's very interesting that you guys are sort of exploring that but understand for everyone listening that that is a it's a real challenge for Chinese brands and Chinese culturally to 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 do that so yeah I think it's interesting interesting um so I guess like to end really do you have any advice for niche foreign brands looking to come into the market uh, in the hair care space or is there any focus that you would recommend or anything that you think that could support because I do believe that you guys your market needs more other brands to help the market grow like I don't think it's a matter I think it is a, it's a communal thing so what what advice can you give um yeah so so I think uh yeah we we definitely want to have more <laughs> Um, I think successful or established hair care brands, especially those niche ones that we used to uh, use personally, you know, when we were studying abroad to come into the China market. Um, I, I, I do think that um, for Chinese consumer, uh, it will be, uh, I think it will be helpful for these brands to be more uh, just, uh, localize their um, pain points that they want to address for a Chinese audience uh, because I, I I think I do see some brands that are quite successful abroad they didn't 
I would say, adjust or uh, moderate their message enough for Chinese audience. Mm. And we'll definitely generate some kind of a gap um, in terms of understanding what their product's trying to solve uh, in terms of a specific hair problem or skull problem. Yeah, and um, yeah, that I think that that is one observation. Um, yeah, and I, I would say also, um, um, I, I, I think that, like I mentioned that for um, those specific, I, I think shampoo is something that a lot of the customers are already super familiar with, but if um, a lot of brands can um, collaboratively introduce more kind of innovative scalp and hair products into the Chinese market and uh, just put more resource on uh, putting up educational content, I think that will be helpful too, because his, um, traditionally speaking, the thinning hair is always associated with stigma or uh, embarrassment on the consumer end. So if those brands can, you know, try to find, you know, interesting or interactive ways to uh, educate the audience while solving this type of embarrassment and stigma associated with the thinning hair issues, I, I think that that would be interesting and that that would be very promising trend too for the market. Yeah. Um, also, I think it's very important for the foreign brands to find the right partner in China because all brands, they start really well because like probably they're already like famous in overseas and there are probably a lot of people who really looking forward to buy them. But um, sometimes it happens like they don't, they didn't really find the partner who understands both the Western culture and the Chinese culture. So either they lose, they kind of like um, couldn't catch up because probably the partner don't really know why, don't, doesn't really know well the Chinese market, or they find someone who's really, really, really good at um, doing things in the Chinese market, but don't, they don't, they're not really great at communicating with the brand itself. So sometimes it happens that like we, we see what happens is like um, they change partners and they kind of lose um, brand equity during the process because people, people will be like, oh my God, like why their team also is closing, right? And it's actually because like they're changing partners. So like, I think it's important to find the right one from the beginning. Yeah, I think that balance is really important. Like you want to be able to give your local China Chinese partner enough room to really leverage what they know and experience the market. But there does need to be a good communication between the brand and the partner. And having that that bridge is is really is really important. And, and I think the point about you know foreign brands um china like chinifying as we call we've called it on it i did another podcast with someone talking about chinification foreign brands really like how do they how do they chinify their brands and i think brands are starting to realize that they have to do that for china china is an important extremely important market with a big enough opportunity and it's so unique that you you do have to manage your messaging and really localize i think it's a it's a struggle for niche brands purely from a bandwidth and a budget perspective because they have you know their teams don't often have the capability to do it or if they do like they don't have the money to do it locally in china so that that, that is is a bit of a a pain point for brands but it's a it's it's crucial it's really important so they have to figure it out so um 
great advice. Thank you so much. And I'm really looking forward to seeing La Terapia grow more in China and hopefully expand into other markets as well. It's an exciting space, premium hair care. I think there's, as we've talked about, so much opportunity in the market, like so, so much. So um, thank you so much for being here today and sharing your thoughts with me. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Sally. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me in this episode of Clean Beauty Asia, the podcast with me, Ali Rook. I hope you found the content useful with tips and tricks and takeaways that can really help you move your China journey forward. I always like to hear from my listeners, so please join me on LinkedIn, Ali Rook, or Instagram, Clean Beauty Asia, and I'll be very happy to talk to you more. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.